This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here. On this program, as many of you will recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the archive. We uh, hear it, we discuss it, and then we ask him, in this case, to read one of his own poems, or in this case, translations. Poems, translations, we'll talk about that in a moment or two. That has been published in the magazine. And one of the reasons why I'm hesitant about thinking about whether or not they're original poems or translations or such notions, whether or not they might come into play, has to do with the fact that our guest is Stephen Mitchell, one of the great translators of the era, a poet himself, of course, but a translator of such works as The Odyssey, uh, The Iliad, The Bhagavad Gita, among so many other texts. Welcome, Stephen Mitchell. Thank you, Paul. Now, the poem you have chosen to read is Two Voices in a Meadow by Richard Wilbur, one of the great American poets of the era. What would one say? He's been a colossus for so many of us for so long. When I was starting out in the poetry business 50 years ago, uh, Richard Wilbur was one of my heroes. He continues to be one of my heroes and I've no doubt that he's a hero of your own. Yes, from uh, age 20, I actually met him back then during an interview for the Amherst Literary Magazine, and uh, I was quaking in my shoes. It was a wonderful experience of awe, and uh, I still treasure his poems. So you were a student at Amherst? Yes. And was he teaching there at the time? No, he was teaching at Wesleyan, Mm -hmm. so I had to make a little trip to uh, Middletown, Connecticut, quaking in my shoes all the time. What are your strongest memories of Richard Wilbur at that time? He was a handsome man, uh, very intelligent, of course, and uh, gracious to a young student. And I I was um, deeply moved by that and, and, and deeply grateful that he gave me the time. Now, one of the things that we admire about Richard Wilbur is his... The way we describe it, I suppose, is his extraordinary technical facility. It's a kind of curse, I think, for many writers. There is, in some uh, intellections, a notion that facility actually suggests the facile. 
Uh, for some people, there's a sense that actually facil- it's mere facility, that mm. it's all surface, no content. Mm-hmm. None of this seems to apply to Richard Wilbur. No, uh, I mean, you're right. It can be that for lesser poets, what I appreciate about Richard Wilbur, among many other things, is the uh, acute sensitivity of his ear, his inner ear. For me, that puts him in this sense among poets with an exquisite ear like Wallace Stevens and and T.S. Eliot in an odd way. And, and going back among the great English poets to the, the poet I consider who has the, the greatest ear of all, John Milton, even more than Shakespeare in a certain way, the, uh, the sensitivity to, to vowels and changes of meter within a metrical system that are just fill you with delight at, at these subtle little changes. And we'll see that in the poem that I'm going to be reading. Well, indeed, just looking ahead, and we'll hear it in a moment because we do want our listeners to have a sense of what we're uh, talking about. I notice even there's the relationship between the cherubs in line one of a milkweed and the crib in line two. One is echoic of the other, you know? I don't know if you ever do this, uh, but when I love a poem, I sometimes try to take it apart a little and and see why what's good is so good, like substituting words and seeing why the poet actually chose the word. So, for example, in this one, the first line is anonymous as cherubs. And I was wondering, well, why didn't he use angels? Because it fits the meter, anonymous as angels, and it has that nice assonance too. But that would lose the reference to babies. Cherubs are baby angels, mm-hmm. and although in ancient Hebrew they're fearsome uh, beasts. So the baby angels and the crib of God, the nativity scene, uh, adds something to the poem that simply angels wouldn't. You know, let's hear the poem, Richard Wilbur, Two Voices in a Meadow, read here by Stephen Mitchell. Two Voices in a Meadow, a milkweed, Anonymous as cherubs over the crib of God. White seeds are floating out of my burst pod. What power had I before I learned to yield? Shatter me, great wind. I shall possess the field. A stone. As casual as cow dung under the crib of God, I lie where chance would have me, up to the ears in sod. Why should I move? To move befits a light desire. The sill of heaven would founder, did such as I aspire. One of the first things I notice about this poem is it it's obviously, it's a diptych. It's in two parts. It's actually quite painterly, to use that overly oh, used term. Oh, I had never, I had never, that had never occurred to me, yes. Well, I mean, it, it, it part of it, of course, has to do with the, the, um, the relationship in the second line in, of each verse, or each stanza, I should say, over the crib of God and then under the crib of God. And that, that's the, the, the connective tissue, as it were, between mm-hmm. the two parts mm-hmm. of the poem. Yes, it's the up and the down of things. 
and their two voices are, are marvelous. One of the reasons that I love this poem so much is that it, it is about the experience of surrender. And I don't know of too many poems that address that. It's such a central uh, and critical experience in any kind of spiritual practice. And this poem comes, or at least the first part of it, comes very close to what words can express about it, although the experience is, of course, inexpressible. But I love, I love the, the personification that tries to express that inexpressible experience. The personification of the milkweed and the stone, uh, both of them mentioning the crib of God, so you have a kind of little nativity scene here. That's right. You know, you have, in addition to the talking animals, the ox and the ass at the nativity scene, you have a talking milkweed and a talking stone to complete the picture. And there's such humor in that, um, as, as well as the, the seriousness of the issue of surrender. You, of course, are, um, if this is an appropriate term, rather wonderfully versed in the central notions of the Buddhist tradition. And in that sense, I think this poem really is of a piece with that, isn't it, in terms of surrender? And, you know, it's also of a piece with the essence of the Taoist tradition, which is the Tao Te Ching, one of the books I've published. I, I did a really free, not so much a translation, but an adaptation of it. And at the center of the Tao Te Ching, which makes it so meaningful to uh, millions of Americans uh, and Europeans, is the emphasis on yielding. And that's counterintuitive to what we have in our culture, which was, which is a culture of control and power. So in the Tao Te Ching, we hear lines like, uh, yielding is the way of the Tao. In other words, once you can learn to let yourself be carried by the current of life rather than making such stressful efforts to control life, once once you, you can be, find the way to let yourself be carried away, everything becomes effortless. And that's that's the uh, the end of practice. There's no more practice at that point. There's simply a joyful, effortless living. And the first part of the poem is about yielding, and it expresses it with a kind of passion that I find rare in poetry. My own view is that the greatest poets understand that uh, some version of giving oneself over to something beyond oneself, be it the language, Mm -hmm. be it quote-unquote merely the language, is actually an absolute prerequisite to doing anything of interest. Yes, yes, I I agree. And um, you can tell when a poem is controlled that it becomes intellectual and, you know, what you first mentioned about technique, it becomes about technique rather than giving oneself up to something, giving up the ego to what Wilbur here calls the great wind, what, of course, the milkweed would experience mm-hmm. as as the wind. And and in many languages, as you know, um, wind and spirit are the same word. Inspiration. Yes. Inspiration. So in Greek and Hebrew and 
uh, although not in English. In English, we have two words. But backing up a little, what I what I love about this poem is that the pattern, the meter is, um, I experience it as iambic trimeter, but there's hardly an iambic line in it or fully iambic. So, you know, when you begin anonymous as cherubs, you only have two beats in that line over the crib of God. You, you begin not with an iamb. White seeds are floating and you have that, those two uh, emphases at the beginning, white, which is delicious to my ear. And then out of my burst pod, again, two emphases at the end of the line. And then when you get to this wonderful climax, shatter me, great wind. I mean, there's there's such a, a wonderfully satisfying breath that you have to make at that point. Shatter me, great wind. Again, two beats at the end of the line. It just expresses what the meaning is in, in such a, an integrated way that there's a, a breath of, of excitement, of exhilaration about that experience yeah. of destruction. You know, one of the words I find fascinating here uh, is the very first word in the poem. It's the word anonymous. And anonymity, of course, is something that we associate with that, the complete set, putting away, setting to one side of the self that we mm-hmm. were discussing. Mm-hmm. It's a term that's associated, uh, of course, with some some of the great poems in most languages. They are written by anonymous people, uh, as it were. Inclu- including the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, that's right. <laughs> and in many ways, it's a term that far too often, perhaps, came to be associated with the translator himself or herself. That actually, you know, that one one didn't know and one didn't care uh, for too long as to who translated a piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, in a way, that's a good thing. Um, one, what, what you should care about is, is it well done, not who did it, just, just as... It's really satisfying in a certain way to to have anonymous as a poet because the poem is what's important. And also, you know, I hadn't noticed this before, but now that you point it out, the anonymous is really the the end point of what happens when you're you're able and willing to say shatter me. Um, you end up as what Emily Dickinson called nobody. I'm nobody. Who are you? How wonderful to be nobody. And it's an achievement, actually. Not everybody can be nobody because uh, it takes a, a great kind of uh, maturity to get to that point. Well, it does, and it's absolutely essential. Having said that, having said that, it is inevitable that the DNA of the translator, and in this, let's talk about. Wilbur as a translator, for example. Oh, he's I mean, a wonderful Wilbur's, translator. Wilbur. His Moliere is is just so uh, exquisitely done and, and witty and intelligent and amazingly keeps the rhyme uh, and the meter of, of Moliere, okay, so more it or is, less. But it is his Moliere, yes. and that's it, my point. I mean, yes. so that tension that we're describing here 
between anonymity and his Moliere is actually a yeah. rather interesting Yeah, one. it's very interesting. It, it, there's a paradox in the art of translation, and I, I do want to get back to the second part of the Wilbur poem, but a really good translator, at least in my experience, needs to be transparent. That means to step aside from his ego or her ego uh, enough to let the poet flow through him and yet at the same time when that is is achieved it turns out that the uh, personality of the translator is as fully infused throughout the translation as the the um, the egolessness so that you can read a translation by somebody who's really good and say ah that's got to be done by so and so in the same way that you hear a piece of uh, Goldberg variations, and you know that's Glenn Gould or that's Murray Pariah. Um, it's you can't help but write through your personality, although it's not necessarily so that you write with your personality. You know, one of the ways I find rather useful, it's maybe a bit fanciful, a way of thinking about how translation functions, and I wonder if it mean, would mean anything to you. I mean, it sounds like a some sort of platonic view of the world, but it's as if there is a, a, an ur-slash-ideal text. Both the first writer and the translator are appealing to a notion of what that might be. Does that mean anything um, to you at all? Uh, that's interesting. Um, what I would make of it is that um, the poet, the, the poet of the original poem, uh, whether or not anonymous, um, is listening to something. Mm -hmm. And the listening eventually becomes the words. So... You know, it's not something, if if a poem is really good, it's not something, in a sense, he's creating. It is creating through him right. or her, and, um, and that's what becomes the poem. So in the same way, a really good translator is listening, but it's stereophonic. So in one ear, he has the original poem in the original language, and in the other ear... There's pure, you could say, pure longing or pure silence where nothing is happening and he cannot force it and will not force it. And then at a certain point, the English words form by themselves as that counterpoint to the original language. And then, then it's done. Once it's on a page, you know, there may be 10 or 20 versions uh, as he fine-tunes it, but... Uh, the original, the first, that first version cannot be forced. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I would love to to move on, uh, if I may, to one of your own translations. Um, it was um, a piece that appeared in the September 23, 2013 issue of The New Yorker. And it's an excerpt from your great translation of The Odyssey, and it ran under the title The Death of Argus. Maybe you give us a little bit of the background to that. Oh, sure. Um, it's This little excerpt is like a hologram of the whole Odyssey. Um, it Everybody knows the story of Odysseus who fought in the uh, in the Trojan War and then uh, was held up for ten years after those ten years of war uh, in various places with various adventures with various monsters and uh, after all that twenty years later he finally makes his way w- with the permission of the gods back to. Ithaca, and uh, this particular incident happens when he's just uh, walking back to his palace with the help of um, the faithful swineherd, Eumaeus, and uh, we'll see what happens in the excerpt. Why don't we just go straight to it? The death of Argos from the Odyssey, book 17, lines 260 to 327. Um, translated and read here by Stephen Mitchell. Meanwhile, Odysseus arrived along with the swineherd. They stopped in front of the palace, and all around them echoed the sound of the lyre. It was Phemius striking the chords of the prelude as he began his song. Odysseus took hold of the swineherd's hand, and he said, This house right here must be Odysseus's palace. How splendid it is, and how easy to pick it out at a glance from a hundred others. One building leads into the next, and the courtyard is very well built with its corniced wall, and the double doors are so solid that no enemy could break through. A crowd must be feasting inside now. I can smell the roast meat, and I hear the lyre which the gods have made the crown of a banquet." Then, in response to his words, Eumaeus, you said, It is easy for someone as clever as you to notice that kind of thing. But now we need to consider what we should do. Either you enter the palace first and approach the suitors, and I will stay here, or you stay here if you wish, and I will go first. But don't be too long. Someone may see you waiting and throw a stone or a spear at you. You must be careful. Odysseus said to him, All right, I understand. You go in first, and I will remain behind. I am accustomed to being beaten and having things thrown at me. My heart has endured. Before now I have suffered great hardships, both on the sea and in war. And if I must suffer another hardship, so be it. But a man can't hide the belly's accursed craving, which causes so many evils and makes us sail ships across the vast sea to bring war upon distant people. As they spoke, 
a dog who was lying there lifted his head and pricked up his ears. It was Argos, Odysseus's dog. He had trained him and brought him up as a puppy, but never hunted with him before he sailed off to Troy. In earlier times, the young men had taken him out with them to hunt for wild goats and deer and hares, but he had grown old in his master's absence, and now he lay abandoned on one of the heaps of mule and cattle dung that piled up outside the front gates until the farmhands could come by and cart it off to manure the fields. And so the dog Argos lay there, covered with ticks. As soon as he was aware of Odysseus, he wagged his tail and flattened his ears, but he lacked the strength to get up and go to his master. Odysseus wiped a tear away, turning aside to keep the swineherd from seeing it, and he said, Eumaeus, it is surprising that such a dog of such quality should be lying here on a dunghill. He is a beauty, but I can't tell if his looks were matched by his speed or if he was one of those pampered table dogs which are kept around just for show. Then, in response to his words, Eumaeus, you said, This is the dog of a man who died far away. If he were now what he used to be when Odysseus left and sailed off to Troy, you would be astonished at his power and speed. No animal could escape him in the deep forest once he began to track it. What an amazing nose he had. But misfortune has fallen upon him now that his master is dead in some far distant land, and the women are all too thoughtless to take any care of him. Servants are always like that. When their masters aren't right there to give them their orders, they slack off, get lazy, and no longer do an honest day's work, for Zeus Almighty takes half the good out of a man on the day he becomes a slave. With these words he entered the palace and went to the hall where the suitors were assembled at one of their banquets. And just then death came and darkened the eyes of Argos, who had seen Odysseus again after twenty years. It's got it all, hasn't it? I mean, the poignancy, the dramatic irony, the, uh, for want of a better term, though I'm sure I could think of one, you know, the cinematic variation of the shot in which... Homer excels with the great wide shot and then the close-up and, the, and the, the medium or mid-shot. Yeah, it's a moment of great excitement and it's the climax of the whole story, really, um, or at least the climax is getting very close where Odysseus enters the palace and there's a huge uh, battle between him and a couple of helpers and all the suitors. But to have, at this moment of intense tension and excitement to have the poignance of this wonderful uh, loyal dog there uh, is just uh, who would have thought it but a great poet now remind me um, it, Penelope doesn't quite recognize Odysseus or no not not at first at yeah. all. nobody does this I mean Eumaeus the swineherd doesn't that's yes. why 
Odysseus doesn't want to go up to Argos, the dog. He wipes away a tear in That's secret. That's a fabulous moment, too, yeah. isn't it? The wiping away the tear. Uh, well, let me just to ask you a question. Forgive me for bringing this up because it's just not the sort of thing that's done in polite society. I forgive you. Polite society. But don't you think it's a bit strange that Penelope doesn't recognize Odysseus? Well, you know, Penelope is a puppet in the hands of the great master poet. So if he doesn't want her for dramatic tension not to recognize him, she's not going to recognize him. But, you know, you could say it's it, it's easy. You add 20 years to a man. You, 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 uh, you disguise him as a, a beggar. You give him grubby clothes and a grubby beard. And in addition, you... Um, you add in your plot uh, a few physical changes by the gods uh, and you've got a recipe for non-recognition. Yeah, I think it's probably, it is psychologically, uh, physically verifiable. One shouldn't quibble with such things. Well, but of course, I mean, it's a given in the poem and how delicious that makes the moment of recognition again and how even super delicious it makes the moment when at the end of the poem uh, they go to bed together and have a, a most passionate night. Uh, well, that, that detail of the recognition of the bedpost, of course, is an ex- another extraordinary moment. Yeah. A modern critic, Daniel Mendelssohn, has said that the poem is a probably the greatest tribute in literature to married love. And I think that's an extraordinary insight. Uh, I've certainly felt that myself. And um, certainly at, at that length, there aren't that many mature tributes to married love in poetry. And this is one of the great ones. Whatever you think of the morality of um, that slaughter at the end, uh, for some people, it's very satisfying. For others, might be a bit squeamish about it. But in any case... Uh, the slaughter has possibly increased Odysseus's libido when he gets to bed. So they have a most wonderful night of it. Well, you know what? I think that's the perfect place on which to draw a veil over our, <laughs> <laughs> over our conversations, uh, uh, which I've enjoyed so much, Stephen Mitchell. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. So, Death of Argus, Stephen Mitchell's translation of that uh, section of Homer, as well as Richard Wilbur's poem, Two Voices in a Meadow, may both be found on newyorker.com. Richard Wilbur's latest book of poems is Collected Poems, 1943 to 2004. So thrilled to think that Richard Wilbur is still with us and going strong. And Stephen Mitchell's most recent collection is Parables and Portraits. Thank you very much indeed. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman.
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.